True Crime South Africa is published in conjunction with Arena Holdings, publishers of Times Live, Business Live, Sowetan Live and others. The opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily represent the views of Arena Holdings and its affiliates. The following episode may contain sensitive material including descriptions of violence, sexual assault or graphic descriptions of injuries to victims. If you feel you may be triggered by such material, please consider this before accessing our content. To access trauma counseling or services, please see the helpline information on our show notes. Welcome to True Crime South Africa. I'm your host, Nicole Engelbrecht. And today I've got a very special interview for you. If you've listened to any episodes of True Crime South Africa from about episode 10, then you'll know that one of my go-to sources is a book by Tanya Faber called Blood on Her Hands. Since I reviewed the book on this podcast, I've used it as a reference on so many occasions that one listener commented that they're going to start a drinking game and every time I say Blood on Her Hands by Tanya Faber, they're going to take a shot. Well, get your drinking pants on, because today I am interviewing Tanya Faber. Before I get into today's episode, I'd like to thank our new Patreon supporter, Brenda Gallup, as well as Nadia Johnston, for her donation through PayPal. Ladies, your donations are really greatly appreciated. I also want to thank everyone who's bought merchandise since it launched. You guys have really gone out there and supported, and I'm blown away by the response. As always, any form of support is appreciated, and it doesn't have to be financial. Sharing of episodes, telling your friends and family about the podcast, and interacting on social media all help to keep the podcast growing and improving. So yes, you definitely heard me right. I had the pleasure of interviewing Sunday Times journalist and author of Blood on Her Hands, Tanya Faber. If you're not familiar with the book, it's a non-fiction book written about South Africa's most notorious female killers. Each chapter in the book covers a different female killer, and Tanya delves into the motives and actions of these women. Some of the women that are covered include Joey Harhoff, Najwa Peterson, Shanae van Heerden, and baby killer Dina Rodriguez. What I really love about the book is that it doesn't take the tried and tested route. In many of the cases, Tanya portrays these women in a light that they haven't been seen in before, and she focuses on new and interesting aspects of the cases. Let's get into the interview. Hi, Tanya. Thank you so much for agreeing to chat to me. I really do appreciate it. It's a pleasure. So I've got the blurb on the back of your book that tells me you're an award-winning journalist with the Sunday Times and you have a master's in journalism from Wits University. But tell me what created Tanya the journalist and writer and why the particular affinity for crime? So I guess I've always been interested in writing and, you know, journalism seems like the sort of natural place for somebody who wants to be a writer but also earn a living. So I've always been drawn to the written word and um, human stories. And I suppose 
you know, one of the, the pros of journalism is that you, you get to spend your life writing, which is fantastic. And one of the cons is the word count is always so much tighter than what one would want to be allowed if one was just allowed to, you know, spread one's wings and have some writing flair. So I guess ever since I was at primary school, it's, it's been a, a calling for me to be a journalist because um, it's certainly not lucrative. <laughs> so one has to certainly be passionate about it. And I have always been very passionate about it. I think my initial kind of call to journalism was the written word, but I think by the time I was in my 20s, it was very much about social justice and about the role that journalism can play in amplifying stories that are of human interest, but which talk about bigger things in our society, I guess. You mentioned in the introduction to Blood on Her Hands that you were actually inspired to write the book while you were covering the Van Breda trial. Yes, that's correct. And you said that it got you wondering why some cases are more interesting to the public than others. Why do you think that is? Why do you think some cases explode like Van Breda did and others just slip under the radar? Well, I suppose living in a country that's got such a high homicide rate, we become quite desensitized to the idea of murder, which is very sad that one would be desensitized to it. But I think, you know, South Africans, like all in, like in all other countries, you know, we, we are fascinated by stories which are kind of out of the ordinary. So one often tends to, I guess, stereotype people that, you know, a lot of South Africans live in such dire circumstances and crimes erupt because of a lack of resources. So when you have a story of, you know, an extremely wealthy family like the Van Bredaars, you, you hear of this ho- horrific triple murder in a family. I guess one is interested because it's a family that one would normally aspire to living like. You know, they were extremely wealthy. They were traveling overseas all the time. And then when a murder happens, you know, for better or for worse, it has a different impact to reading about a gang murder or, you know, or or even gender-based violence murders, which happens so often in South Africa. So while I was covering that trial, I I was amazed at how many people were interested in the trial and how many people were following it. And then I started reading up about, you know, what, what makes human beings interested in one case over another case. And that also then got me thinking about, you know, our fascination with female murderers compared to male murderers. And again, it's because female murderers, like, you know, extremely wealthy murderers, are outliers. The only 5% of um, homicide perpetrators are female. And then if you look at that stat and you weed out the women who kill out of revenge, you're left with a very, very, very small percentage of overall cold-blooded homicides that are committed by women who, you know, are not doing it out of revenge, but just out of sheer cold-bloodedness, I guess. And that's why, you know, the irony of me covering a trial by a male murderer led me to a book about female murderers. And that it was the, it was the element of, you know, the unexpected or the outlier or the, the kind of the story that is different from the stories that we've been desensitized to you know, as a species and particularly as South Africans. I think one of the reasons that Blood on Her Hands resonates with me so much is that you really don't pull any punches when it comes to these women. I think so often when female murderers or sex offenders come to light, the public is almost more likely to give them a break. We automatically assume that there must be some reason they did what they did 
luck because they're women, they couldn't possibly have cold-bloodedly plotted a murder or a sexual offence in the same way a male offender could. So are there two important things I'd like to say about that. The one is that my choice of murderers to look at was very focused. So I looked at a whole lot of different, you know, homicide cases that had been perpetrated by women in South Africa. And I really do firmly believe that there are a lot of women in South Africa who, you know, they might have a criminal record that says they're a murderer and they might be sitting in prison. But one can never justify murder. But, you know, if you look at their background stories, a woman who is completely deprived of access to any resources and, um, you know, lives in a shack and is unemployed and has very little agency over how she lives. And then she falls pregnant and she has a baby and through sheer desperation, she abandons the baby and the baby is exposed to the elements and dies is very, very different from someone like Dina Rodriguez, who, you know, had everything that opened and shut, had a loving family, and out of sheer spitefulness and revenge, decided to have a small baby assassinated. So I excluded anybody from my book where one might get a sense that, you know, if you were in the same shoes, you might end up behaving in the same way. So in sort of, if if I can say, curating the stories, I made sure that it was women who we can't say, oh, well, you know, who can blame them? And then the second point I'd like to raise about that is throughout history, the, the notion of female murderers has always been that, you know, if you look at the, the Victorian sense of a woman who commits murder, it's that she's mad at someone who's lost her marbles or she is, um, she's completely out of touch with reality and, and demented. So she's insane. Or there's always a sense of women being portrayed in the role of a nurturer. So these kind of polarizing ideas of a woman as a nurturer or women being associated with madness make no room for a woman's place as somebody who just like a man can cold-bloodedly decide to bump someone off. And in a way, (laughs) it sounds a little bit twisted, but it's almost, there's almost a feministic undertone of saying, Women are perfectly capable of just being evil, you know. Not every woman who commits murder is is mad. There are women who know exactly what they're doing, and just like their male counterparts, they plot and plan and kill another human being. So I just I, I find it very fascinating the way when you look at murder through the gender lens, it's quite hard to move away from the stereotypes of the nurturer or the murderer. You know, the, the, the mad murderer, the insane murderer, the hysterical woman. Because, you know, as reference in this book, there are women who just cold-bloodedly decide to kill someone. Yes, it's a very strange phenomenon for me. And it's something that I try to explore in the podcast when I talk about cases like these. I know you wouldn't have considered the Advocate Barbie case because, of course, it wasn't a murder case. But that was a fascinating case for me because she seems to suffer from some sort of abuse. But there was also an element of her committing the crimes out of her own free will. Well, it's interesting. I mean, you know, if you look at Charmaine Phillips in my book, for example, you know, one could, I guess, argue that she, perhaps she was uh, sort of brainwashed by, by Peter Grindling and Joey Harhoff also, but that was the whole point of my book, was to say, you know, 
these women had agency over what they did. And we, we stripped them of their ability to have that agency, however negative it, negative it is when we assume that they're a sidekick. So, um, for example, here in the intro, I say, archetypes have proliferated over the centuries. Black widows, femme fatale, sexy assassins, creepy nurses, baby-faced butchers, to mention but a few. And when we have those archetypes, what we are doing is we are taking away any space that says this is an individual with an individual personality who for some reason or other committed these murders. So that idea of agency over what a woman does and then how we portray them in the media and in books afterwards is very interesting to me because, you know, we we don't feel comfortable unless we can squeeze them into one of the, the sort of the boxes of what sort of woman she might have been. It's, I find it fascinating. Absolutely. And I think that it takes away from the victims as well. Because if you're trying to find a reason... 100%. 100%. I agree with you. I mean, think of how often when people read about female murderers, they, they are much more fascinated with the murderer than the victim. So, you know, people are often asking for, you know, the, there's always... And I think we're all guilty of it. You know, I'm not judging anyone. I'm the same. If you're reading about a female murderer, the first thing you want your, your newspaper or your online publication to do is to show you a photograph of the woman. You know, your brain is already going, what, what sort of woman would do this, you know? And, and you're 100% right in that act of highlighting the, the lives and our own fascination with the perpetrator. We often ignore the victims. And I did try in the book, you know, for example, specifically in the Shawnee, I mean, in all of them, but in the Shawnee and Hearden chapter about the woman who met the guy online and met him, um, Michael at the, Michael Van Eck, she met him at the cemetery. You know, it was important to me to show that this was a human being who was going on a date and he had a shower and he put on his cologne and off he set. It's so easy to just think of him as the victim of Shawnee Van Heerden, but he also had a life and a name and a family. So you're 100% right about that. You mentioned Joey Harhoff, and that was something I wanted to touch on, because what I found interesting about how you presented her is that your book is one of the first resources I've found who was willing to present her as an equal role player in the crimes she committed with Van Royen. Most other resources present her as the sidekick who was just along for the ride. But you really brought her forward and showed that she had this past of her own where she was sadistic and abusive and goodness knows what else long before she even met Van Royen. And honestly, it's the first time I've seen her presented that way. So I thought that was fantastic. Well, thank you. And I I also found that very interesting. You know, I, I trawled through more court records and newspaper reports than I can even describe to you. And every single time she's described as the mistress, the sidekick and the honey trap. And none of those actually do justice to the absolute cruelty of her behavior to her daughter before she became Gert uh, van Rooyen's partner, but also also to the victims. And I think, I think that trope of, you know, the, the nice friendly Tani in the wig who lured the girls to the car you know, even even by her being portrayed as that, it, we've kind of held on to that notion long after, you know, decades later where, you know, even by calling her the honey trap, sure, she was the honey trap, but, you know, it's not like she, she lured the girls to the car and then walked off and played no further role. So it's just, it's fascinating to me how we let her off the hook because of being female. I just, I found that so interesting. 
okay, you know, earlier I used the word agency. Again, it doesn't acknowledge the fact that she had agency over what she was doing. Yes, I mean, she kidnapped her own niece. Well, exactly. No, exactly. I mean, that, you know, even, even though I was the same age as, as some of the victims at the time, and we were all aware of, you know, what was happening, and these girls were disappearing, and then, you know, there was the, the suicide by the bridge. And even at the time, it wasn't highlighted enough that she went for her own family member. I mean, it would take a severe form of brainwashing to get somebody to do that against her will, you know, to have her own sister's daughter abducted and in all likelihood murdered and raped. Yeah, one, one can't strip her of agency of that. One just can't. I wanted to ask you, when you researched that case, did you find it difficult to separate facts from fiction? Because there's so much misinformation out there about that case. Definitely. I mean, that case, it's steeped in so much um, sort of urban legend. And, you know, every now and then, you know, as I kind of described in the book, every now and then the case will pop up again. And, you know, there'll be bones were found on the beach or um, a skeleton was found under a swimming pool or, you know, some quack scientist comes along and says that they've got this amazing device that will A, B or C. And I think I think the proliferation of those urban legends is a direct result of how much fascination there was with this case at the time because they seemed like such an unlikely duo who were committing something like this. You know, this was apartheid South Africa in Johannesburg, Pretoria, Durban, Peter Maritzburg. I mean, it was just so outside of what everybody was thinking. Yeah, it was it was very difficult. It, uh, I think always, you know, especially when when because the bodies were never found, I think that has also fueled the kind of urban legendary around it. Whereas, you know, the urban legends around it, whereas with all the other cases, it was kind of closed and shut. You know, we know who the perpetrator was. The bodies were were found. The, the families had closure. But in you know, you know, nature hates a vacuum, and without any closure for those families, any sort of story can bloom about what happened to those girls. You've told us how you went about choosing the cases that you included in the book. But are there any cases that you wanted to include but couldn't, simply because of space restraints or any other reason? Well, very, very, very interestingly, Tandi Makubela was originally in the book. But before I even wrote the chapter on her, she was acquitted on appeal based on, you know, the um, just one testimony at her trial, which said that her husband, who was the acting judge, had actually died of natural causes, and therefore how could she be up for murder? So my editor and I were then discussing about, you know, um, white female murderers versus um, women of color, and particularly black African women. And what I find so interesting is that there are far fewer black African female murderers if you're looking at this kind of case of, you know, sort of cold-blooded first-degree murder, far fewer than, um, than, than white female murderers. So I found that very, very interesting. So Tandi Makubela was left out of the book, but she was one of very, very, very few black female murderers who I was looking at. Once you'd chosen your cases, can you maybe take us through your research process? So where did you find your information and what sort of sources you used? if you're able to share that with us. Okay, absolutely. So obviously it differed from case to case. I mean, if you look at, um, you know, Daisy DeMelka, who's the first woman in my book, that case is from a hundred years ago. So the, the sort of the layers of history that have kind of 
layered over the story over the years are very different from someone like Phoenix Racing Cloud Tehran, which is a much more recent case. And, you know, the the standard of journalism and, and, and the sort of proliferation of public information is completely different for the two cases. But let's say as a general rule for each of them, what I did was I trawled court records, some of which were in the public domain and some of which I had to go and seek out. And then I also trawled through books and I also trawled through lots of media reports to look at how things were framed. In some cases, you know, like in the Najwa Peterson chapter, I mean, the the court records were phenomenally detailed. You know, there were hundreds and hundreds of pages of direct quotes from the, the court records. Whereas in some of the other cases, it was quite difficult actually to find detailed court records. But in general, those were the kind of the, the sources that I, that I had turned to. And then I would, you know, synthesize all the information that I got, build up. I'm sure you noticed in each of the chapters, I, I start off each chapter with almost a, a sort of a narrative nonfiction description before I go into the actual facts of the case. And, you know, obviously there's a little bit of poetic license there, but, but each little detail is based on historical research or media research or literature reviews or court records. Which one of these cases stood out for you? If you could narrow it down to one or two, and why do you think that is? Sure, that's a difficult one. I'd say um, Daisy DeMelka is particularly fascinating because she is the only one who was a serial killer who acted alone. And she's also the only one who's a serial killer in the true sense of the word. You know, you get spree killers, like Charmaine Phillips was a spree killer who, you know, they go and they commit murder. And when they're still on a bit of a high from the one murder, they go and commit another murder. So, you know, within a couple of days. But the only one who is a genuine, when I say genuine, I mean just fitting the description of a serial killer acting on her own in cold blood, it's Daisy DeMelka. And, you know, she's the only one who who, um, who hanged for her crime. So she was very fascinating to me. And then Marlene Lenberg was interesting because she was from such a Fakramta religious background that, you know, I think when she, when she fell in love with her, her partner, whose um, wife she then killed, there, there was such a sonic boom when she broke out of the Fakramta upbringing that she'd had that she sort of overcorrected and, and was willing to kill for what she did. So she fascinated me because of that. And then um, Charmaine Phillips, we've spoken about, Joey, we've spoken about, Dina Rodriguez, well, I mean, you know, obviously she's a, a real outlier because you very, very seldom hear of cases where a child has been the victim of an assassination. And then Najwa Peterson was interesting to me. I think what stood out for me for that case was, um, you know, she had attempted to kill Talip in the April the year before. So, or, or, you know, earlier that year. So she killed him in the December, but she had attempted, she had stabbed him in the April. And it just, what fascinated me there was the, the family dynamics and the dynamics of their relationship and the fact that he stayed with her, you know, knowing full well that she was, she was capable of that. And then I guess I should mention, um, Tseliwe and Bokazi, that case fascinated me because, you know, that case was very interesting because in the beginning, I was, you know, does this really fit the bill? Because she was a teenager and she married this much older European man who clearly had a lot of economic power over her. But then when I did my interviews for, you know, when I did my interviews with experts, they said to me, and it's true that, you know, again, we make an assumption about whether she planned it. And actually, you know, she, she exploited the situation to her own advantage. And 
You know, we can't just go, oh, well, you know, because she was a teenager and because she was a, a black female, you know, maybe she didn't have as much agency. Because when you look at the facts of the case, she was willing to have her husband murdered in front of their children, which is pretty extreme. So I think, you know, every case is actually very different and they're all equally as fascinating. And then with Phoenix Racing Cloud, you have a, a teenage daughter killing her own mother, which is also, you know, an outlying story in many ways. Yeah, so every single one of them stood out for me. You know, there's an outlying fact in every single story. And that's, I guess, why they're so fascinating. Daisy DeMalka's case was another one that you presented very differently than I'd seen done anywhere else. And I think that's because you placed a lot more focus on her children. And I don't think many people are aware that she may well have had a hand in killing some of her other children as well. Absolutely. I mean, what I find interesting about that is on the one hand, you have her always described as, you know, the, the sort of the archetypal black widow who kills her husband and then um, helps herself to the resources that he leaves behind. But what's so interesting there is that at the time, the infant mortality rate was so much higher than it is now that she was able to lose, you know, at least three of her children under very weird circumstances with nobody going, you know, this is very strange. This is very strange. Um, you know, she's lost so many of her children. We need to investigate her. So if, if someone like Daisy DeMelka came along now and that many of her children died, law enforcement would be all over it. But, you know, so it, w- what it shows for me is that the historical context almost determines the extent to which flags are raised about something strange going on. So for me, the, the fact that her children died, yes, I agree. I think it's a, it's a fact that's often overlooked. And I guess because she was convicted only in the end for the murder of her son, because there was such irrefutable evidence, you know, before she hanged, the, the very sad stories of her children dying, you know, yeah, I agree. They've kind of been tipexed out of the story in a way, you know, over a century. And then you mentioned Talib Peterson's murder as well. And that was another interesting one for me, because when it was covered in the media at the time, we could have easily believed that Najwa's main motive was greed. But when you really get into the details of that case, it's almost a classic domestic violence situation. With her previous violence against him and her manipulation, it really struck me as being an abusive situation from her side. Yes, it's absolutely true what you say. I mean, if you if you compare her to someone like um, Eliwe Mbokazi, who, you know, had never, ever, ever done anything that could have been construed as criminal. So on paper, it's a similar situation. You've got a, a wife who has her husband bumped off and then stands to inherit something. But then when you look more closely, you're 100% right. I mean, it looks like she was mentally not very stable and that the way she treated the people around her was was extremely cold and manipulative, and that for some reason she had a, a hold over Talib, you know, who, who, you know, Talib was was almost like a sort of, um, you know, he was he was an extremely talented musician, but he was also seen as a bit of a teddy bear in the cultural scene in Cape Town, like this completely adorable and adoring, loving, warm character, you know. But what was going on behind closed doors was obviously, you know, he had found himself, as you say, and and I think again, it it kind of subverts our notion of, you know, if I say to you, there's a situation where there's ongoing domestic violence, and then someone gets murdered. 
you would be completely within your rights to jump to the conclusion that the genders were the other way around, you know, that it's, it's a male perpetrator and a female victim. But as you say, you know, here you have it the other way around where it's the perpetrator's female with a, a history of domestic violence where she's the perpetrator. I mean, you even saw her having financial control over him, which is another clear sign of coercive control in a domestic violence situation. She controlled his money. The house was in her name. And even though he was earning money from his shows, he didn't have any access to it. Absolutely. Absolutely. And also the way, you know, the way she procured her hitmen. Um, and then you, you look at also Dina Rodriguez, who literally, you know, she went off to the taxi rank and she just sort of shopped around for, for, for killers. And you can see that, um, you know, in both those cases, there was a lot of manipulation that went on. And I, I find it fascinating that, you know, if you look at all the stories in my book, apart from Daisy DeMelka, everybody had an accomplice, you know, either a boyfriend or some sort of, in inverted commas, cheap labor that they'd picked up to help them or an underdog like Najwa, you know, who, who was so wealthy and found poorer people. So it's interesting that that level of manipulation is, um, it's a very interesting element in a lot of the stories. And that also makes me wonder how many women have gotten away with it. Because these are just the ones that got caught. How many women have procured someone to do their dirty work for them and everyone just kept their mouths shut and the death was seen as a robbery gone wrong or a terrible accident? Exactly. 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 When you started to look at writing the book, how did you find the appetite for this sort of material in the market? Was it relatively easy to find a publisher? Yeah, so interestingly, I had originally pitched a book on the Van Breda murder trial, but then it turned out that other people were already writing about it. And then, you know, I'm a science reporter at the Sunday Times and completely unrelated, I came across a very fascinating study about female serial killers. And I wrote a big feature for the Sunday Times. And then Jonathan Ball Publishers, to whom I had pitched the Van Breda book, Esther, who Esther Levenrod, who was working there at the time, phoned me and she said to me, hi, Tanya, it's Esther. And I was like, oh, maybe they are now interested in the Van Breda book. And she went, this is the book you should be writing. This feature you've written for the Sunday Times is fascinating. And this is the book you should be writing. So I was lucky that I didn't, you know, it wasn't a situation where, like with the Van Breda book, where I had written a proposal and gone to different publishers and was waiting to hear back. It was more, I had already built a, a bridge with Jonathan Ball. And then they spotted a feature that I'd written for the Sunday Times. And then from there, it was just, um, you know, it was the actual process of writing the book. So it was, it, it, fe it felt like one of those meant to be sort of moments, you know. I know that one of your other books is a biography. And then you've written two books on writing. So this is your first foray into true crime. Do you think that the bug is bitten and there might be another? Well, I, I think so, because, you know, I, I watch so many true crime documentaries and I'm, I'm really fascinated by it. And I think, you know, the kind of the balancing act, I think, for true crime is to sort of not, you know, as you say, you know, you were saying earlier about about the victims and all that. I think sometimes true crime books tend to glamorize the murderers. And that is the last thing I'd want to do. But at the same time, just the, the human psychology is just mind blowing. I mean. 
you know, what I, what I realized with this book was, you know, there's forensic psychology and then there's DNA and, um, you know, their footprints. And they're just, they're, there's so many things in true crime that one could actually pull out as a theme and write a whole book about it. And I've been watching the um, a documentary series on Netflix called The Innocence Files. And I'm just blown away by those stories of innocent people going to jail, you know. And then you, you, you think of in America where they are, they are innocent people you know, who are being murdered by policemen, the policemen don't end up in jail. And then you've got other people who are completely innocent who are sitting in jail or are even on death row. And then you realize how fallible the whole criminal justice system can actually be. And then you realize how interesting true crime is because it's not just about the crime, but also about the attempts at punishment that follow. Yes, absolutely. One of the things that I found fascinating is is the ripple effect that these crimes have, sometimes for generations after the fact. And it's not even just in the victim's family. It's their school friends and their partners. People carry this type of trauma with them forever, and it changes how they raise their children and how they live their lives decades later. Exactly. I mean, I found when I was writing the, the Joey Harhoff um, chapter, you know, I could, I could handle all of it. I was immersed in the, in the research and I found it very interesting. And then I'd pop out and, you know, I'd go down to the shops to get a, a chocolate and I'd think, oh, you know, there are just so many people in the world who aren't murderers and actually the world is a good place and these people are really the, the exception to the rule. But, but somehow writing about the Joey Harhoff chapter and remembering how I had perceived of it at the time when I was, you know, 16 years old myself, it was a very hard chapter to write because, as you say, that, that kind of ripple effect of, you know, not just um, obviously the immediate family, but the whole community and the school and, and you know, the, the society from that time, it really leaves a kind of a footprint on your soul, I think, afterwards. And you, it's something that, you know, it, 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 it gives you the chills or tears, however many years later. You mentioned in the book that you wrote it over a relatively short period of time. What sort of time period are we talking about? So the, the book, um, the first iteration of the book was written between June and December. So that was six months, but that's, you know, on top of being a mom and having a full-time job. So I didn't get much sleep over those six months. And then over the next few months, it was a case of editing and, you know, researching any gaps that, um, you know, if there were any gaps in the book where the editor said I should find out a little bit more. So the whole process took a year, but the first iteration took six months. I know that when this book was published, the Krugersdorp killers case was still ongoing. But I think that case on its own presents three very interesting and distinctly different female murderer personalities. Have you paid much attention to the case? No, I must admit that when that story broke, I, I think I was a bit um, eight basuk with female murderers. And I think I, I deliberately turned my gaze away from it because I, I, felt, I felt sickened, you know. So I guess it is something I will read up about again, you know, when the time comes. But yeah, the timing, the timing was off for me. You know, it's interesting if I can just make a comparison when, you know, last year when Uyinene was killed, the, the young woman who went to the post office and, and got raped and murdered, that happened just down the road from me. And I really immersed myself in that story and I wrote so much about it and 
I was I was heartbroken and I was, you know, you you know that feeling when as a journalist you just immerse yourself in something. And now with these recent cases of women being killed, my sister who lives overseas phoned me the other day to ask me something about one of the cases. And I said to her, you know, it's interesting, but I've actually deliberately stayed away from from the details of the stories because you know, I'm still carrying that that kind of in my psyche, there's still Uyenene's story. And I think it's probably the same with these stories and the, the Krugersdorp killers, you know, where you actually just, you don't actually have the, the space in your brain to absorb another story that's along the same lines. I am extremely grateful to Tanya for chatting to me and to Jonathan Ball Publishers for organising the interview. I think that Tanya has some really interesting insights into the criminal mind, and she has a really unique way of bringing across these stories. I really hope that she'll be working on, on another true crime book for us soon. If you don't yet have a copy of Blood on Her Hands, it's available through Loot, Take a Lot, and at all good bookstores. If you'd like to hear my review of the book, which I did when it was published, check out the True Crime South Africa website under the True Crime Books tab. I would love to hear what you thought about the interview today, and if there were any insights that stood out for you. You can follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And please subscribe to the show on the app that you're using to listen right now. I'll be back next Friday with a full case episode. Until then, thank you for your support, and I'll chat to you soon.